Hello, welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week is Samuel Clark. Samuel Clark was born in 1675 in Norwich in Norfolk, England. He was the son of Edward Clark, who was an alderman of Norwich and a member of Parliament. He started his education at Norwich School before moving on to Caius College in Cambridge, and he studied under John Ellis, who was a friend of Isaac Newton. Clark's thought was greatly influenced by Newton's work on physics, and he actually produced a textbook that criticized René Descartes using Newton's methods. The same year that this was published, which was 1697, he met our previous podcast subject, William Whiston. Well, at that time, Whiston was chaplain to John Moore, who was Bishop of Norwich, and after taking his orders, Clark took that job after Whiston moved on and was presented to the rectory of Drayton in Norfolk by Moore. In 1706, Clark was sent to the rectory of St. Bennet Paul's Wharf in London, and he was then appointed by Queen Anne to be one of her chaplains in ordinary, and in 1709, she presented him to the rectory of St. James's in Westminster. Through this position, he became acquainted with another podcast subject, Isaac Newton. In 1710, Clark obtained his doctorate in divinity, but his thesis for this degree caused some controversy with the presiding professors because it was unorthodox. He swore to keep the 39 articles, which is to say that he was theologically orthodox with the Church of England, but as his thesis and later writings show, he was not exactly keen on the idea of Father, Son, and Spirit, the Godhead three in one. He really liked the oneness side of that, but not the three persons, and claims that he was a heretic, and specifically the old heresy of Arianism, would cause controversy throughout his career. By 1714, a book that he wrote called The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity got a strong enough reaction that a formal complaint was filed from the lower house of convocation because the Blasphemy Act of 1697 made it an offense for anyone claiming to be Christian to deny the Trinity. So Clark wrote an apologetic preface, and the upper house of convocation was satisfied. And part of this was because he had some powerful friends, so they could kind of sway the governing bodies, and the other part is that he promised not to preach or write on the topic anymore. So promising silence does get you out of bad times. Clark also gave the Boyle Lectures for two years, 
which again a number of our podcast subjects have done, and his Boyle lectures were later compiled into books. Later, he was presented the Mastership of Wigston's Hospital in Leicester, and in 1727, he was offered the post of Master of the Mint after Newton's death, but he actually refused that position. This was in part because his friends encouraged him to focus on his clerical duties, and the post at the Mint would take away too much time and energy, especially if he went for it as strongly and forcefully as Newton had. Clark had seven children with his wife and first cousin, Catherine Lockwood. They married in 1700, and five of the children survived Samuel, but only three appear to have survived Catherine's death in 1753. Samuel Clark fell suddenly ill while going out to preach on a Sunday in 1729, and he died the next Saturday. His funeral was actually held at St. James's. So with that background, let's take a quick break and then come back and talk about his Old Testament work. Welcome back. So, as I noted earlier, Samuel Clark became friends with people like Newton and Whiston, who we already noted in previous podcast episodes were primitivists. That is to say, they believed that religion has devolved over the years and the more ancient form was closer to the divine plan. So, the farther back you go, or more primitive you go, the more pure the worship is. Another strand of thought that we have seen many times in this podcast is the concept of natural religion. This goes all the way back to some of the first people that we looked at in the beginning of this podcast. Natural religion is the idea that there are natural laws and morals derived from these laws which point to God. The opposite of natural religion is revealed religion. One is found in nature and is available to all people at all times, and the other is given directly to one person or a group of people, and so is specific and specialized. Many of our previous subjects wanted to reconcile these two ideas. Specifically, they were trying to figure out how they could make Christianity and natural religion almost synonymous, but also make sure that revealed religion is not just simply a retelling of natural religion. Because if it is, that would make it redundant and superfluous. We don't want these two types of religion to contradict, but if one doesn't add something new upon the other religion, then what is the point of having both? If natural religion gives you everything, then Christianity is kind of just extra. Well, Samuel Clark found himself asking these questions. What are we doing with natural religion, 
and is primitive Christianity the more pure form of worship? For the first question, Clark claims that not only Christianity, but specifically the Reformed Church of England, is closest to natural religion. Part of this has to do with his dislike of Catholicism. Remember that he is friends with the primitive Christianity scholars. If Christianity has devolved and twisted or added a bunch of nonsense over time, then we can lay the blame for that squarely at the feet of the Catholic Church. By his time, the Catholic Church had been dominant for almost 1,500 years, at least in Western Europe, so any corruption is their fault. Also, it feels good when you can blame someone else rather than your own tradition. But the second reason why the Reformed Church of England is closest to natural religion also ties in with his association with Newton. He became obsessed with mathematical certainty. Remember the big influence that Newton had, and even when Newton himself was focusing on numbers and the dimensions of buildings in the Old Testament, specifically the temple. Well, Clark was not a mathematician, but he was heavily steeped in logic and philosophy. So he was using the idea of mathematical certainty a little bit broader than Newton would have envisioned it. He was thinking about propositions and laws of nature. So the focus of religion needs to be on propositional truth and the laws of nature rather than outward expressions or rituals. If you know anything about the Catholic Church and the Protestant groups that splintered off of it, the expression changed significantly. Rather than the mystical priest-led rituals, many Protestant groups focused more heavily on scripture and simplified church liturgies. It was more of a well-reasoned preaching in the vernacular than the call-in response with preaching in Latin, which many common people didn't understand. And this is precisely what Samuel Clark wanted. Logical truth that can be demonstrated and that is devoid of misconceptions or outward ritual and expressions that may obscure this kernel of logical and propositional truth. Now let me give the other side of this. He claims that the Reformed Church of England is the closest to the primitive and true Christianity, but he prioritizes mathematics, or perhaps, in our terminology, logic. Remember, in the first half of this podcast, that I said he essentially rejected the Trinity? This is partially a math issue. How can you have three in one, yet are distinctly three? But it's also a biblical issue, as he claims the biblical text does not clearly state this. Since this is a mostly New Testament argument, I'm not going to dive deeply into those arguments, but I will come back to this in relationship to the Old Testament later on. In any event, that this is not an orthodox position for the Reformed Church should be noted. Trinity is a core doctrine. So as he says, they are the closest to primitive Christianity, and the Reformed Church of England is the closest to natural religion, he certainly does not believe that they are precisely on target and 
is at least initially unafraid of pointing out where he disagrees with them. A second major area that Clark diverged from the more normal Reformed views is his view of the Old Testament. Particularly, he believes that the Old Testament is just a bunch of idolatry and is essentially worthless for Christians. As someone who has spent years studying the Old Testament, this hurts my soul, but let's hear him out. First, he is reacting to what his other primitive Christianity friends are already doing. Remember that Newton tried to use mathematics to get a deeper meaning behind the text, or show that there was a truth underlying some untrue traditions that grew on top of it, and many others pointed to Egypt and whether it was Egypt's dependence on Moses or Adam or Moses's dependence upon Egypt. All of this already shows that people were uncomfortable with the Old Testament. But Clark is just digging deeper into this discomfort. He rejects this search for mathematical truth or some hidden earlier meanings under the text. Instead, he uses a dispensational method of understanding history overall. Now, I'll talk about his dispensational method, but let me give a brief aside for those with some Christian background that might have had alarm bells going off when I said dispensational. There is a stream of thought in Protestant churches called dispensationalism. And most would say that this started with someone like John Nelson Darby, or at least became popularized by Darby. This is typically contrasted with covenantal theology, and this type of dispensationalism is close to what I'm talking about, but really has a fundamental difference with it. So dispensational theologians in the traditional Protestant sense see God acting in history differently throughout different stages of time or different dispensations in time. So God talked to Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall very differently than with the nation of Israel. After the coming of Jesus, God acts differently within the church than God had acted with Israel during the previous dispensation. These are because God's plan is developing in stages or dispensations. So God's plan unfolds throughout all of these stages and the relationship with God will change as it develops. However, these theologians do not deny the usefulness of the Old Testament. They would say that God has a different covenantal relationship with Israel than with the church, but that does not mean that the Old Testament is full of idolatry or pointless. It just shows God acting towards his people in a different way at that time than during the church age. It also shows that Israel's ability to be corrupt and rebellious against God's law is kind of the same in the way that Christians have done throughout church history. They also would see each of these stages as building upon the other. So all of the actions with Israel and all of the successes and failures of Israel are the foundation 
upon which Jesus and the church are building. The dispensations of Samuel Clark are quite different in meaning, even though they align in chronology somewhat. So Samuel Clark has four dispensations, but they kind of evolve, or I guess devolve, into each other. So first is the establishment of natural religion. This is dispensation one. And this goes until essentially Moses with the Israelite de-evolution, stage number two. Then you have the establishment of revealed religion, that is Jesus Christ, which runs into the final dispensation, Trinitarian de-evolution. So the pattern is clear. Natural religion and Jesus' revealed religion both devolve into Israelite religion and modern Christianity. On a side note, a Trinitarian de-evolution shows that Clark believed Jesus originally taught monotheism in a strict sense. That is not three in one, but solely one. And so Trinity is a corrupted form of this monotheism. Here again, we can see why the church officials were less than thrilled at his writings on this topic. But what's important for us is that the New Testament is in a short period of time right after Jesus. So this encapsulates the high point of revealed religion by Jesus, according to Clark. The Old Testament, however, was not written at all during the natural religion stage, but during the de-evolution of Israelite religion stage. Even if you don't buy Clark's dispensational arrangement, this observation is obvious. So the Old Testament was not written by Adam or by Abraham, but by Moses and later. So clearly, it's concerned not about the perfect natural religion state, but it details the highs and lows of Israel and their development as a people in history. So what Clark sees as perfect spirituality, that is, ahistorical, being not tied to history in the New Testament, is clearly absent in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is set in a historical time and place in almost every book of the Old Testament. For me personally, the historical setting is what I love about the Hebrew Bible. But for Clark, this compromises scriptural authority. Remember that natural religion is true in all places and at all times. So historical contingencies are problematic. Also remember that he likes mathematical truth, which is to say propositions like Jesus' claim, love your neighbor as yourself, are great. But stories like David defeating Goliath just don't compute. It is not an ahistorical proposition, so how can this story be scripture? So the Old Testament does show natural religion, a pure natural religion, but only from Adam to Moses. If you have read the patriarchal narratives, it may make you wonder what is pristine about this period, but that is the argument as presented by Samuel Clark. So, even Moses himself is an idolater, 
and pushes forward with corrupt Jewish religion. What is the point of the Old Testament then? Well, for Clark, it is to show the greatness of the New Testament. The Old Testament shows wretchedness in order to show the great spirituality of Christ. As David Ney noted, quote, It is appropriate to speak of Clark's Old Testament as a sacrificial lamb. It is given over to the vicissitudes of history for the sake of the greater good, Clark's New Testament apologetic, end quote. Now, those astute listeners to this podcast may be thinking about monotheism. Clark places revealed religion in Jesus as the big monotheism moment, but that's a Jewish thing, right? Well, not exactly. Clark is not praising the New Testament for adding monotheism generically, but for adding particularly Christian doctrines to the monotheism of natural religion. So the Old Testament showing monotheism is just showing what natural religion already shows. It isn't adding anything particularly insightful or morally helpful. Instead of containing pristine knowledge that is otherwise unknown, as someone like Newton would claim, this is just the Jewish dispensation, not a revelation from God. The Old Testament is one of many ancient idolatrous traditions that contain some pieces of the true natural religion, but adds nothing new and godly to it. Clark believes that the Old Testament typically obscures the truths of natural religion, so he only occasionally preaches from it. And even then, he is using the principles of specific verses in an abstract sense, rather than the narrative or setting of the text. In addition, he describes the Jewish religion as the antithesis of Christianity. So, one has obedience to laws and physical demands, but the other has moral and spiritual ordinances of God. Clark believes that during the Israelite dispensation, that is the Old Testament times, the law was God's way of trying to accommodate people who were weak, both morally and spiritually. However, with the great revelation of Jesus, these laws are now seen as being against the true religion and suppressing inward virtues. So Moses is an idolater and the God of the Jews as a promoter of idolatry. Therefore, the Old Testament is useful as scripture only to highlight the spiritual, moral superiority of the New Testament. With this in mind, I want to return to his biblical argument against the Trinity. In his thesis and his later book, Clark does not cite the Old Testament. Many scholars in his day took issue with this because they would say that at least the seeds of Trinitarian thought were in the Old Testament, and some would even claim that the Old Testament itself shows God as Trinity in a very explicit way. Clark, for his part, did not respond to most of these arguments. But when he finally did, 
he showed his complete disregard for the Old Testament. Most Christians see a unity of the Bible. The story goes from Genesis to Revelation, and to understand one part, you must understand how it fits into the whole narrative of history and revelation. In other words, you can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. You can't understand David without Moses who came before him. You cannot understand Moses without understanding the promises made to Abraham, the patriarch. So everything is building upon what came before, and you have to know the scope of the narrative in order to argue from one section of the narrative. Clark, however, does not subscribe to this. Since he puts the Old Testament on essentially the same footing as other classic pagan literature, and since it details the devolved state of religion and idolatry in Israel, it doesn't matter what it says about the Trinity. You don't need the Old Testament to understand the New Testament because the Old Testament was written by and for a bunch of idolaters. If Moses himself was an idolater, what does it matter what him and his followers think? Even if they talk about the Trinity, who cares? They were idolaters and not following the true and pure religion of Jesus. So when Clark denigrates the Old Testament to an essentially idolatrous and corrupt foil for the spiritual and moral New Testament, this changes how he reads the biblical text and how he argues his theology. He does not need to cite the Old Testament to make his theological points, and even if someone else uses the Old Testament, he can completely ignore them because they're using the unenlightened half of the book. As you might guess, I am not swayed by this interpretation of the Old Testament. Not only is it dangerous for the practice of reading the Bible, as his completely one-sided Trinitarian argument shows, but it can easily lead to anti-Semitic positions. In the early modern period, marginalizing or persecuting Jews was unfortunately common, and using claims like the Jewish religion being at war with the true religion can only strengthen these tendencies. Disagreement happens, but the strong rhetoric that he is using of being at war with Christianity or the antithesis of revealed religion, especially being used against a group that is already treated with suspicion, makes me slightly nervous. So outside of the somewhat unsettling implications theologically and politically for denigrating the Old Testament, Clark has an issue to deal with in terms of natural religion and this will be the last point that I will touch on. So, natural religion is the set of moral duties that comes from natural laws, which are essentially attributes of God found in nature. Clark goes into depth on these points in his Boyle lectures, but that basic definition is enough for our conversation. The problem that Clark runs into is how natural religion and revealed religion work together, a problem many of the scholars of this era wrestled with. Clark wanted to hold that natural religion was salvific, but insufficient. So, Jesus' preaching 
was rational and aligned with natural religion, but it is not completely synonymous with it. As with many thinkers of his day, the fall in Genesis is important here. So the only ones who lived in perfect accord with natural religion were Adam and Eve, specifically before they got kicked out of the garden. After the fall, after they got removed from the garden in Genesis chapter 3, people have a tendency towards idolatry and religion devolves. So natural religion, in theory, is sufficient to offer salvation for people. But in reality, it is deficient. Our natural state is not idyllic. This is not the Garden of Eden anymore. So we need revealed religion as a corrective to this. As Clark said, after the fall, quote, there was plainly wanting a divine revelation to recover mankind out of their universally degenerate estate into a state suitable to the excellency of their nature, end quote. So revealed religion and natural religion have the same goal, which is to make people virtuous, but they are not equally successful because we are in a corrupted state. This then introduces his view that Jesus and Christianity are the most able to make people virtuous. If this is the goal of religion, then the issue of historicity in the Old Testament again comes through. Natural religion and revealed religion need to be universal and nearly synonymous, so anything that is particular to a time and place or not found in natural religion has no place. And this is, honestly, most of the Old Testament history and Mosaic law. So Samuel Clark is essentially jettisoning the Old Testament. He viewed it as the history and writings of idolaters. The message of the Old Testament is against the New Testament because the New Testament is about spirituality and morality, divorced from history. But the Old Testament is carnal and idolatrous laws, all being tied to a history of corruption. This means that theology develops only from the New Testament, and the Old Testament is just another ancient historical text, like any other classical work, whether Egypt, or Roman, or Greek, or Mesopotamian. The only positive elements of the Old Testament are witnesses to natural religion, but because these are simply witnesses to natural religion, they are not unique to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is not needed if these principles are clearly seen in natural religion. A true revealed religion in Jesus was needed to correct the corruption of natural religion by the Israelites in the Old Testament and save humanity. So this is where I will leave us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening. And also join me in two weeks for one of the most influential in our short series of English theologians from this time, John Hutchinson. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. 
If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening. Thank you.